Well, the topic I've been given is uh, suffering and sovereignty, John Flavel and the Puritans on afflictive providence. Uh, uh, before we begin, let's open in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and we do thank you for that word, and we do pray your blessing upon us uh, this afternoon as we consider the teaching of your word as exposited, as taught through your servants, the Puritans. May we gain a greater desire for our Savior who suffered for us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the history of Christianity is a history of suffering. The history of Christianity is a history of suffering. I want to read something from 1 Peter. This has been referenced already. But 1 Peter chapter 4, and I, I was thinking, and I was trying to actually make some notes on my notes uh, based upon things I've heard. I've been, because things that have been said or were in my notes, and now they're not in my notes because they've been said. So what I want to do, I think, this afternoon, is, I think most helpful is to do what the Puritans were wanting to do in their own day, and that was to prepare their congregants to suffer well. In fact, there was a a book by John Flavel called Preparation for Suffering. And very few people even know about Flavel, much less any of his writings. But this is one one of those books that if you were to read Preparation for Suffering, you would think it was written for today. Because there's some very direct parallels, not like it was then in the 17th century, but some very direct parallels to what we, I think, we're heading uh, today. The first Peter 4, verse 12, says, Beloved, I think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed... Let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the household of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-being as unto a faithful creator." Certainly, timely in all seasons for us. There was, during the period of the Reformation, you know, starting uh, around 1560, you had this movement that sprang up that we know today as Puritanism. And I need not hardly uh, go into an introduction of Puritan history here, but it is important to look at Puritan, the Puritan movement through the lens of a history of suffering. Because so much of the Puritan cause uh, ebbed and flowed uh, with persecution. 
And of course, they face, you might even say, greater sufferings in their day compared to maybe we who live here in the United States. But I think at the outset, it's important to see this history that was ingrained upon their own minds as Puritans, primarily through books like John Fox's, he called it Acts and Monuments, we know today as his Fox's book of martyrs. And what made that book in particular so powerful in the minds of the Puritans, and really for many beyond just English Puritanism, was not just the stories of those who were persecuted down through the ages, it's written in 1563, it wasn't just the stories, but the pictures. It was like one of those first books that that really utilized the woodcut pictures, and those pictures would be seared into the minds of the Protestant and Reformed in England. And when you had those stories so fresh, and you got to remember that whoever, there was not the separation of church and state uh, back then. And so when you had a monarch, and, and that monarch, let's say, uh, was a, a Roman Catholic, uh, then everyone in that monarch's kingdom was Roman Catholic. And if you were not Roman Catholic, then you, you would suffer, typically. And you also have to remember that there were wars going back and forth on the continent uh, in Europe. So there was great fear. And so uh, when Queen Mary, uh, we affectionately know her today as Bloody Mary, but when Queen Mary became queen in 1553, and you had a lot of ministers and others that fled England to the continent to find refuge and safety, uh, and back when she died, they would bring back all of those, uh, those, those wonderful tenets and values and statements of faith that they learned on the continent back to England, and it, it was something of a revival. And so when Queen Elizabeth I became queen, she took a middle-way approach. And this middle-way approach is so important to understand the rise of Puritanism, because the Puritans wanted to purify this middle-way and make it a further reformation in England. So from the first days, in the 1560s, you had this fresh on their minds, this seared on their minds, what happened during the reign of Queen Mary. And, and all those that were burned at the stake, Thomas Cranmer famously looking out his jail cell and watching his friends Latimer and Ridley being burned at the stake in 1555. And this was, a, this was such a uh, always in front of them. For us, this is not where we typically are in our country here, but other places, yes. Yes, I was just having lunch today with Paul Washer and things that he's dealing with around the world. It is, it is, this persecution is right there for many, many people. And so we have to understand this when we come to theology of suffering from the Puritans. Just a couple of dangers that we need to be aware of. One is that today there's this perceived immediate need to simply escape suffering. That we just, as soon as it comes, our only thought is how do I get out? How do I make my suffering less? And we need not think that way. And I think the Puritans can help us in this. A second is a sense of entitlement. That if we think that we deserve health, wealth, and prosperity, we deserve life, liberty, and continual happiness, that if we don't get that, then God is not treating us fairly or justly. A third danger is a false belief that joy is only found in the absence of suffering. Paul would write that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
And then a fourth danger is that some seem today to diminish certain attributes and qualities of God. They'll say, well, God just, you know, he's not there as he should be, or he's not sovereign over suffering. I was serving on a committee uh, examining candidates uh, down in Tennessee, and this one guy was coming through our committee. He had been through seminary, well-trained, and I asked him this one simple question, does God ordain suffering? And he says, no. And you all would have gotten that right. Here was a minister (laughs) who was about to go to be a gospel minister over a church, Because he couldn't imagine a good God. He liked the goodness of God. But he would also be sovereign over suffering or see any purpose of it. Of course, he didn't pass. He's not. We got to be careful because if God is good, but he's not sovereign, well, then he can't do anything about it, suffering. If he's sovereign, but he's not good, well, he's just a divine bully. If he's sovereign and good, but he's not omnipresent, well, then he can't be wherever it needs to be to help and to guide and direct that suffering. So we need to uphold the full, manifold attributes of God when we come to this topic. Why the Puritans? Why the Puritans? Uh, This has already been talked about uh, here this weekend, so I'm not going to go into this in great length. But they did write a tremendous amount of literature on the subject of suffering. Why? Well, because they were, many of them were persecuted. There was a moment, so King Charles was beheaded, the first, beheaded 1649. His son goes into refuge. Uh, he's hiding, and uh, Oliver Cromwell becomes, uh, you know, he, of the commonwealth. He, some people argue that he basically took on the, the roles of a king, even though he's called a protectorate. But anyway, so they called back, Uh, King Charles II, the son, the restoration. When that happened, there was a great ejection, and they ejected a lot of people from the Church of England, nearly 2,000 ministers, August uh, 24th, 1662. Flavel was one of them. And then three years later, 1665, you could not be serving. If you were a Puritan minister, you could not be serving within five miles of your parish, your church that you were at. And so then you had all these Puritans that as they would one time at one point they would write that because we had no employment in the pulpit we had to make more work for the press. Why is it that we have such a, a huge volume of Puritan literature? It's because they were having to live out in the country. They were having to live out on farms. They were having to. They were. They could not be in the day to day ministry. They would sneak into towns oftentimes, but they could not be in the day to day ministry. And so they would have this all this time to write. I think Dr. Beakey mentioned at one point in the 17th century that nearly 20 percent of all books sold were Puritan sermons. Imagine this today. I mean, are there any books of sermons being published today? Another reason why the Puritans, they had a unique place as those expositors of practical, or what Dr. Beakey likes to call experiential Christianity, applying Christianity, applying the truths of the gospel, And we do need to recover, I think, a biblical theology of suffering. Why John Flavel? Because this has his name in the title. (laughs) Why John Flavel? And I do think it's Flavel, by the way. Not Flavel or Flavel or something else. (laughs) One of the reasons I know that is because I would call several places where he lived in Dartmouth, England, and that still bear his name, and they would answer the phone. The Flavel Center, the Flavel Church. And so I was like, eh, 
go with that. <laughs> Let me give you three reasons why John Flavel. Number one, John Flavel personally experienced severe suffering throughout his lifetime. He personally experienced severe suffering. He was born sometime between 1627 and 1630. We don't know exactly. At one point, his parents uh, were holding an unauthorized worship meeting. Uh, they were arrested. They were thrown in prison. They caught a plague, the plague in prison. And even though they were released, they died from the plague shortly thereafter. He was very fond of his parents. He wrote of his parents and his works. And he was, he was, it was difficult for him to bear. He was married four times. Not at the same time. Four different ladies, different times. Three died. Three wives passed before he married his fourth wife who would outlive him. But imagine losing three spouses. And his first one died in childbirth and they lost their only son. He would write after that happened, the Almighty, notice, the Almighty visited my tabernacle with the rod and in one year cut off from the root and the branch, the tender mother, and my only son. And of course, the persecution. I mentioned the great ejection. He, after the five mile act, and he could not serve within five miles of Dartmouth in southern England, he moved out to a little town called Slapton. And there he would write a book called Husbandry Spiritualized. We don't use that word husbandry anymore. I, I have a farm, uh, so we have goats and chickens in my house and kids. They're kind of grouped into that. But, um, <laughs> But he's, he writes, he, he sees the world through the lens of Scripture. And as, he, as he's trying to do everything he can to minister to the people of God, and because he couldn't be in his home church, he would be out. And there would be always running from authorities. At one point, he was up in, a, up in this upper room holding a secret meeting in Dartmouth at, by the cover of night. And they hear about, hey, the authorities are coming. They found out where you are, and they're coming to arrest you, Flavel. And his good buddy is there with him, John, another John. And uh, so Flavel gets out, and, and the, as, as an bi- early biographer, as one of his friends, is that his, other, his friend, also named John, uh, was trying to get out because he was also wanted by the authorities. Uh, and, but it says, quote, out of his too great civility, he let a, a lady pass before him going downstairs, but the long train of her, her robe it took a while for her to get down, and by the time she got down, the authorities were there. He was arrested. He died in prison. It's those kinds of stories. And there's times where he would uh, be being chased on a horseback and actually go off into the sea trying to get away. Uh, and so this kind of persecution, he was not writing as one from an ivory tower. I think a second reason why Flavel, he was very influential in his own lifetime. Within his own lifetime, locally and and nationally. A royalist historian, so this would be a historian, he taught at Oxford, who did not like the Puritan cause, okay, so anti-Puritan historian, Anthony Wood. He said that Flavel, quote, had more disciples than ever John Owen, the independent, or Rich Baxter, the Presbyterian. Another contemporary of Flavel, and one of his friends, John Galpine, said uh, he was, quote, deservedly famous among the writers of this age. Remember a reading about from Increase Mather, who was actually a president of Harvard at one point uh, early on, uh, saying that Flavel was deservedly famous among the writers of this age, both in Old and in New England, and it shall be so until the Lord returns. Well, it's not the case. But in his own, in his own lifetime, 
he was very influential, and I think that's another reason why I think he is an ideal Puritan from whom to learn about suffering. We also see how his enemies regarded John Flavel. They would create effigies and burn those effigies in both Old England and in New England. Uh, One uh, Church of England clergyman, Edmund Ellis, wrote in a letter in which he claims that there are three enemies, quote, three enemies of the church whose writings have made so much noise in the world, Dr. Owen, R. Baxter, and John Flavel. In, in fact, we see those three names grouped together quite often in historical records. They, they, those three seem to represent something of the Puritan element. I think a third reason why I think Flavel is an ideal candidate person to learn about Puritan theology is that it was a... It consisted of a large portion of his own writings. Just a few titles, just from his works. You can buy his complete works, a six-volume set by Banner of Truth. Listen to these titles, three titles. A Token for Mourners, or Advice of Christ to a Distressed Mother Bewailing the Death of Her Dear and Only Son. You don't get much more practical than that. Preparation for Suffering. I mentioned this earlier. Preparation for Suffering, subtitle, or The Best Work in the Worst Times. The Best Work in the Worst Times. I like this one. Number three, The Balm of the Covenant. The Balm of the Covenant applied to the bleeding wounds of afflicted saints. People say theology is not practical. Flavel would disagree with you. The balm of the covenant applied to the bleeding wounds of afflicted saints. Well, the types of suffering that they faced, you had plagues, you had things like the great fire of London in 1666, poverty, persecution. You had, this, you had ongoing sickness, dysentery, affliction of conscience, loss of reputation, public calamities, loss of friends, confinement, exile, blindness, deafness, spiritual conflicts, many things that we deal with today. But it is that element of persecution, if I can prepare you today to be persecuted, to suffer well for the sake of Christ. Historian John Spur says persecution ranged from minor harassment through disruption and rough handling by constables, soldiers, or mobs, personal injury, destruction to mass imprisonment. Gerald Cragg, historians noted that during the Restoration period, the last half of the 17th century, uh, persecution of nonconformists was the official policy of England's rulers. What was a nonconformist? So a nonconformist was one who did not conform to the prescribed worship of the Church of England. And, we, and they saw that through the use of the Book of Common Prayer. And so if you wanted to worship in a way that you felt was biblical and not go along with the Book of Common Prayer in your worship, you'd be considered a nonconformist. And and again, that persecution against you would ebb and flow depending on who was in power. But it's important to know that one of the reasons reasons they're called Puritan is because they wanted to purify the worship primarily. They they didn't want to just go in and kneel at the the bread and the wine because they saw that as idolatry because Christ is physically not there. He is in heaven. So... They didn't want to do the sign of the cross. They didn't want to call it an altar because it's a table. Christ was sacrificed once for all. But the enforcement ebbed and flowed. Flavel writes, Though millions of precious saints have shed their blood for Christ, 
whose souls are now crying under the altar, How long, Lord? How long, O Lord? Yet there are many more coming on behind in the same path of persecution, and much Christian blood must yet be shed before the mystery of God be finished. Thus you see to what grievous sufferings the merciful God hath sometimes called His dearest people. So there are external sufferings, of course. You can find lists of these external sufferings in the Bible. Paul does this with his own life. You see this in places like Hebrews 11, and those that have been even sawn asunder, it says. But he says that the worst sufferings are internal, not external. In fact, this is interesting. If you go in order to to read the Puritans on suffering, most of their writing to to encourage and give comfort to, to people in regards to suffering is not dealing with physical pain. That's, maybe, maybe that's typically how we think of suffering. Uh, I was poked in the eye, and I'm blind in that eye or something. But, but they're dealing with internal pain, internal pain, grieving, sorrow, mourning, despair. And he says, Flavel would say that these are, these are far worse. He refers to these, even the death of a loved one, quote, the greatest of earthly sorrows. And, of course, he knew all about that. And even that title I gave you just a minute ago, the balm of the covenant applied to the bleeding wounds. In the book, he's not dealing with physical blood. He's dealing with heart wounds, heavy wounds of soul, of conscience. And spiritual sufferings brought about by Satan. We miss this sometimes. Temptations, spiritual oppression, feeling removed from God, the overburden of guilt. Now, we probably don't. We, have a less, we don't have enough guilt in some sense today, right? But they had such a heaviness of, the, of their guilt before God. And, and they couldn't release it. They couldn't read Romans 8.1 and, and trust the promise that there is no more condemnation. And he calls this spiritual suffering. Flavel would write, Thou hast more reason to lament thy dead heart than thy dead friend. To lose the heavenly warmth and spiritual liveliness of thy affections is undoubtedly a far more considerable loss than to lose the wife of thy bosom or the sweetest child that ever a tender parent laid in the grave. Who could write that today? Who could write that? He says, spiritual distresses are those afflictions brought about when sin lay heavy and helped by Satan's malice. Thomas Watson explains that some sufferings like the breakdown of family or suicide, the effects of addiction. Those are all things that happened in the 17th century. Direct result of of temptation of Satan. He said, Satan tempts some to do away with themselves and work some kind of inclination in the heart to embrace a a temptation. But this internal discouragement and sorrow, despair, that they're beyond forgiveness, that God could not forgive, even if I... Run to him in faith. That makes God simply a terror and not a God that I adore. Well, we've already heard this weekend on where suffering comes from as a curse or a fruit of the fall, is what Flavel would say. It's a fruit of the fall. You don't suffering and affliction and death and disease and dying, thorns and thistles before the fall. By the way, You can't have millions and billions of years stuff living and dying before the fall. But he wrote a book, his most famous book, Flavel, 
called Divine Conduct, or it's well known today as the Mystery of Providence. The Mystery of Providence. And if you know anything about John Flavius, it might be, probably be the book that you've heard about. And Dr. Beakey has written that he calls it the best Puritan work on divine providence. He calls, if you're probably wondering about Stephen Charnock's book, he calls that the second best. <laughs> Sinclair Ferguson writes that of all of Flavel's works, none speaks with more power than this spiritual classic. The mystery of providence. The mystery of providence. God's ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. And when you bring that to the subject of suffering, there's great mystery to it. Why? Why? He doesn't just allow it, but ordain it. Well, Flavel would write that sovereignty is an attribute of God. How do you see it? How do you experience the attribute of God's sovereignty? He says you see it or experience it in two ways. One is what we call eternal decrees, the, the eternal decrees of God. And the other is in the temporal providences of God which are simply those decrees brought into time and space. Do you think about the eternal decrees? Isaiah 46, perfect example. God has declared the end from the beginning. But then the providence of God is taking all of those decrees and saying, today is the day. Today is the day of your salvation. I've decreed your election from before the foundation of the world, but today is the day. I remember the story of R.C. Sproul. He was preaching... And a lady who had been visiting his church for a year came up to him and said, Dr. Sproul, today's the first time I've heard you preach the gospel. Of course, he'd been preaching it for the whole past year when she was there. And he said to her, ma'am, it's the first time you had ears to hear the gospel. Providence says today was the day for her. Eternally elected, decreed, today is the day. The idea that Jesus talks about not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. And so this idea of providence is one that the Puritans stress. Why? Yeah, they believe in the decrees of God. They believe in God's sovereignty. But why do they stress providence as a word? Because it was the practical application of God's sovereignty in our lives. Does that make sense? The practical application of God's sovereignty in our lives is, that, is why they would stress and use this idea of providence more. Flavel would write, we ought to ascribe nothing to chance but to the appointment of providence of God. And it's interpreted through Scripture, through the Word. Providence works in concurrence with the Word, and no testimony of providence is to be accepted against the Word. And so in these, for these reasons, yeah, the Puritans would be very much against the ideas of, like deism. You know, that God would just kind of wind up the universe like the clock maker and let's let it all go. There's been people who have argued that Flavel was a deist uh, and could be farther from the truth. Uh, He believed in, certainly in the decrees of God, but providence. And he believed in what we call today the doctrine of concurrence. Maybe you've heard of this and you know this well. This idea that God uses what, what Flavel would call the secondary means or secondary causes. You know, you have the the laws of nature, of gravity, of, of weather systems. You know, I got here last night, and, and I get checked into my hotel, and then all of a sudden get out, and my, my phone's, like, blowing up. There's a tornado coming through. And I hear that y'all had to go, I guess, down here in the basement. Did that surprise God? Did it surprise God? You think about, you think about hurricanes, things like that. So he's, he's, he's created even weather systems 
And yet concurrently, the doctrine of concurrently, concurrently governs them towards his very end, even specific ends. One great example of this, Job 37. In Job 37, it says, verse 6, For he saith to the snow, Be thou on the earth, likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength. He sealeth the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, Out of the south cometh the whirlwind, and a cold out of the north. By the breath of God frost is given, and the breath of the waters is straightened. Also by watering, uh, he, he wearieth the thick cloud, he scattereth his bright cloud, and it is turned around by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the uh, world in the earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. He causes it. And so, you know, sometimes you would have those big, like Katrina, you know, wondering, and they'd have people on to the, used to be an old Larry King show, have John MacArthur on there. It's always a breath of fresh air when he was on there. And he would just, who, who, who caused this? God. <laughs> no question. No question. But I think we want to apologize for God when bad things happen. We want to apologize. You know, that tornado came through and we're thinking, we want to say, well, God, you're, no, he's not in this. Because bad things happened. Bad things happened. Now, we, I know we have to deal with, in some ways, this, the problem of evil. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But let me just say this about the problem of evil here. Uh, because suffering in itself is not evil. Morally evil. Okay. It'd be weird if Paul were to say, I rejoice in my sufferings. If sufferings were evil. God permits Evil and sin, he permits evil and sin. Case in point, Job. He permits it for his own purposes. In fact, Paul would write even in 2 Corinthians 12 about the thorn in, this, in the flesh. And he calls it a messenger of Satan. Interesting. But God sends it to keep him humble, or so he's not inflated with air, literally in the Greek there, so he could understand that my grace is sufficient for you. He permits evil and sin. He restrains it. There's a story of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And, you know, this is where Abraham and he's lying. Uh, and it says in uh, Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, And God said to him, Abimelech, in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. He restrains he overrules. We heard this earlier, didn't we? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He overruled their sin, their evil for his greater purposes. And he ordains, he ordains all for his glory. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But God is sovereign over suffering. If you're going to hear one thing, please hear that. We'll get into the why in just a second. But just the fact that he is sovereign over suffering. He's not surprised by your suffering. Remember, my mom died when I was 14, and I was an only child. And I remember my dad waiting for me out in front of the, front of the house, and I got home from a friend's house, and he came out, and um, he was in tears. And, and he, was, he told me, 
And I remember I, I ran in my room that night and thought, I've heard so much about God, and yet I feel that He's not here in this moment. And I wanted to think, well, maybe He didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe this is Satan or something. And, and I've... And over the years, I've seen so many countless ways that God has used that in my life and others to shape and form me. And as we heard earlier today, that it's in those trials, those moments of affliction that we tend to grow most. Even the details. Flavel would write, In all the sad and afflicted providences that befall you, I, God, see God as the author and order, order of them. God's hand is to be acknowledged in the greatest afflictions that befall us. Lift up thine eye to the sovereign wise and holy pleasure that ordered this affliction. And it's, and it's to the detail for a purpose. Thomas Watson would say, whoever brings an affliction to us, it is God that sends it. Why does God ordain suffering? Let me give you some, some basic principles on this. Because... It is ultimately for God's glory. And we see it really in two ways. For the unbelieving world, suffering comes as raw effects of just judgment. In part in this life, and in fullness in the life to come. Let me say it again. For the unbelieving world, those who reject Christ, suffering comes as raw effects of just judgment in part in this life, and in fullness in the life to come. But for his people, his elect, those who are bought by the blood of Christ, suffering comes as good and loving discipline. We just heard this from Hebrews 12. God chastises, he disciplines those whom he loves. And so this is why the Puritans, Flavel and others, would distinguish between sanctified afflictions. You heard this earlier, sanctified afflictions and unsanctified Sanctified being those afflictions for believers because they come to you, as it were, through the, I'm just quoting Flavel here, through the veins of Christ. They're coming to you through a different channel because you're not under the condemnation of God if you are in Christ. So how could you receive this kind of affliction in your life? Only through the channel of Christ as believers. That's how you receive it. And so, Flavel would argue, from our standpoint as believers, these afflictions are sanctified, sweetened, and even turned into blessings. He would say, Behold then, as a sanctified, a sanctified affliction is a cup, whereinto Jesus hath wrung and pressed the juice and virtue of all his mediatorial offices. Surely that must be a cup of generous royal wine, like that in the supper, a cup of blessing to the people of God. Of course, you heard this too about the Gethsemane, the cup of wrath that he would drink to the bitter end. The unsanctified afflictions, those for unbelievers. Again, raw effects of God's wrath and judgment. In fact, Flavel and the Puritans would argue that suffering, when, they, when it comes to those who are not in Christ, actually hardens them even more. It, in that way, it has a... It has, suffering comes as a way to distinguish believer and unbeliever. So here's a summary. While affliction and suffering come upon the unbeliever as signs and effects of his judgment and wrath, they come upon the elect as loving discipline with a design to produce greater godliness. 
You can think about the man born blind in John 9. Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was, that he was born blind? Neither one. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. The other thing we've got to be careful about is overreading God's intentions in our sufferings. This morning, if you got up, you stubbed your toe, and you thought, ah, that's because I didn't pray last night. <laughs> this happens. This happens. You know, something bad happens, and we think immediately, okay, there was something directly. I failed to open the door for the lady last week. That's what it is. It's overreading God's intentions into your suffering. You know, suffering in your life isn't, isn't always a sign that you've just done something just immediately evil or sinful. And, and prosperity in your life isn't just a sign uh, that you're doing everything great. We know this again from the story of Job. Remember, what have you considered? My servant Job. It wasn't because Job was particularly wicked man, right? It's just the opposite. This is why they called suffering the school of affliction. Because in it we learn. Well, let me give you five quick reasons, and we need to, I'll cut short, and we can ask maybe a couple questions, okay? Five quick reasons here why God ordained suffering for believers. Coming from Flavel, from the Puritans, one, to kill sin, to produce godliness. One is to kill sin and produce godliness. This is why they also called them searching afflictions. Because they would search out your sin and discover them unto you and to others. It's in the middle of the trial that's like, ah, I'm pretty impatient, aren't I? <laughs> Stuck behind cars in an interstate somewhere and you realize, I'm in this affliction. And I'm angry about it. We see our affliction through, or sorry, we see our sin through affliction. We confess it. We can repent of it. It is a, in that way. It's a cleanser. It's suffering is a cleanser, revealing to us our sin, deterring us from greater sin. It drives community where iron sharpens iron. And if you think about iron sharpening iron, it's not a soft kind of thing. There's there's something that sparks are coming off. There's metal that's being discarded. Richard Sibb says, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the reminder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. Number two, reason that God ordains suffering for you and me as believers to relinquish that we might relinquish the temporal for the eternal. I actually heard Dr. B use this word earlier. To wean us to wean us from a love of this world, that we would redirect our thoughts and affections for that which is to come. That we would have, you know, he would talk about, it's better to lose, pluck out an eye, and your whole body and soul will be cast. We are sojourners and pilgrims here. Our citizenship, Paul would write, is in heaven. Instead of holding on to the fading things of this world, sometimes God will take those things that are too close to our hearts. Good things, even. Sometimes we can make an idol of the best things. 
And God will sometimes remove those best things that we would redirect our affections after Him. Number three, to produce a sincere faith devoid of hypocrisy. Sometimes suffering will come, and for the Puritans, this is what Flavel would talk about, is that persecution would ebb and flow, and when it would come, that's when he, what he called Jesus' summer friends would flee. Those that were just around him when things were bright and sunny, but when the fires of persecution came, those summer friends of Jesus would, would leave. And in that way, that's what I was talking about earlier, in that way, it had a, suffering comes to distinguish it. You see it all the more. Those that in the midst of pain and suffering, by and large, I mean, there are those times where we don't do this, but by and large, we want to cry out to God. We want to say, you know, Psalm 55, 22, I'm going to cast my, my burdens upon the Lord, knowing that He will sustain me. The void of hypocrisy. Distinguish the believer and the unbeliever. Number four, when suffering comes, one reason is that it gives us the opportunity to bear witness to the world. Unbelievers watch how we suffer. There's been plenty of examples, plenty of stories where unbelievers are watching believers suffer, and they suffer well, and it becomes a great witness and testimony to them of the reality and truthfulness and the veracity of the gospel. Number five, suffering comes to the believer to cultivate fellowship with God through his word, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. So when suffering comes into our lives, that we are driven to his word, they are driven to our knees, they were driven to the Lord's table for that assurance, does he love me? In the midst of this affliction, I just got a cancer diagnosis, let's say, you just got some kind of disease, you just lost, a, had a family in our church, they lost a, a daughter. Does God love me? And after considering their heart before the Lord and taking those elements, that assurance, sealing to them those promises, yes, tokens of love to you. Those, are, those promises, as Dr. Beeky was talking about earlier, those promises of God, You're driven to drink deeply of those promises in His Word in the midst of suffering. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. Suffering does not give a justifying excuse to sin. I think sometimes if we're in the midst of suffering, people say, you know what, I'm just going to get drunk and just not, not even think about it. Or, I'm suffering because of that person. And I'm going to go take it immediately out on him. Of course, we know what Romans 12 says. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Suffering does not give us a justifying excuse to sin. And we should not have excessive sorrow, grieve as those, with, as those without hope, not to become the chronic victim, which is so common today. Flavel says the least sin is more formidable to you, formidable to you than the greatest affliction. Doubtless you would rather choose to bury all your children than provoke and grieve your heavenly Father. I don't know if I could write that. Sin increases, hear this, sin increases the sting of suffering. We have this temptation and thought, false belief, that if I just go and sin, it just make me feel better, but it increases the sting 
of suffering. But it is right and good to prepare to suffer. Jesus was always preparing his disciples to suffer well. Remember this in the Gospels. And again, if I can encourage you to read his book, Preparation for Suffering. But we respond to the suffering, sometimes passively, and this is, I'm just going to trust the Lord. Your grace is sufficient for me. I'm going to trust the Lord. It's the old hymn, It is well with my soul. Peace like a river. I'm just going to trust. Passive response. But there's active responses to suffering. Communing with God by reading and meditating upon His Word, individual and corporate prayer, resting in the assurance of His promises in the Lord's Supper, reading helpful literature on the subject, repenting of any particular sin that has become evident during her trial, serving others as followers of the suffering servant, being involved in the fellowship of your local church. The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll just mention one final thing regarding to regarding Christ, and then just a couple takeaways. With Jesus, and we just heard this, what a, what a wonderful message to consider the suffering servant. Consider Isaiah 53 and what Christ has done in his suffering on our behalf that even drinking that cup of suffering. Flavel would write, from the, as it were, from the Father's perspective, listen to this, from the Father's perspective regarding his Son, I will now manifest the fierceness of my heart to Christ and the fullness of my love to believers. The pain shall be His, at the ease and rest may be theirs. The stripes His, and the healing balm issuing from them theirs. The condemnation His, and the justification theirs. The reproach and shame His, and the honor and glory theirs. The curse His, and the blessing theirs. The death his, and the life theirs. The vinegar and gall his, and the sweet of it theirs. He shall groan, that they shall triumph. He shall mourn, that they may rejoice. His heart shall be heavy for a time, that theirs may be light and glad forever. He shall be forsaken, that they may never be forsaken. And out of the worst miseries to him shall spring the sweetest mercies to them. How... Should we minister to suffering, those suffering? How should we minister to them? One, be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. Sometimes people in the midst of their affliction, they say things that are not theologically the most accurate. There's a time to talk about that. It may not be that moment. That's what Job 6 says, it's words for the wind. Words for the wind. Speak truth in love. Restrain the impulse for just empty platitudes. Don't apologize for God. Point them and lead them to the means of grace. Follow through with community. We are great at the first two weeks helping someone after they've gone through an affliction. Take them meals, care for their children. Two weeks, for some reason, it's the two-week number. And then we're like, you're on your own now. And sometimes it's those chronic afflictions that are most difficult. And apply the balm of the gospel. Oh, give them an eternal perspective. This is not the end. There will come a day when Jesus will return and he'll make all things new. And there will be no more suffering and no more tears. And the one who is called the Lamb 
and will be called our shepherd, and he will shepherd us, and we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb, with the saints triumphant from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we need to give our people that balm of the covenant and apply it to the bleeding wounds of afflicted saints, but point them to the Savior and to that time when he will come and make all things new. There's a wonderful hymn. I just want to close by just reading a couple of the verses from this hymn. How firm a foundation, maybe, if you heard it. From the Father's perspective here, when through deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you to trouble, in trouble to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Here, let me close in a word of prayer and let you go uh, to dinner, okay? God, these are weighty topics. We do thank you for the Puritans. We thank you for their labors, their sacrifices who have gone before us that we can learn and grow in greater godliness, greater piety, greater love for you. God, I do pray that you would make us see that every aspect of our life is dependent upon you, that everything that we have from you comes from your hand. God, we do pray that you would be glorified in us when we face times of affliction and suffering. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.